So welcome to week five of our live series at Oxford Vineyard. So our goal for this series is to really press into what it means to be alive in Christ, one, to abide in him, and finally to live a life of sacrifice. So this has been great. We've been meeting in homes alongside this series. Uh, If you haven't been here for the whole thing, it's okay, because hopefully it's easy to follow uh, one piece disconnected from the other. But we've been meeting in homes, we've been pressing into community, and it's been awesome. It's been really, really awesome. So thank you to our, uh, our live group leaders and uh, everybody that's been coming to these, these small groups. It's really been a ton of fun. Uh, it's no secret that we consider this to be a journey through what we call the triune gospel. So what do I mean by that? I mean that when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each of them have distinct characteristics. They're all God but they aren't one another. And so we're talking about a story of relationship, a story of identity, and a story of destiny. And so these are interlocking stories that combine to make up one story of how we interact with God. And so relationship with God is the first and most foundational part of being alive in his love. And that's where we started. John talked for three weeks, and he hit on uh, these ideas of being rooted in the fact that God loves us that God is love, and he invites us to come and and abide in his love. And that's fundamentally important. Something that stood out in my week two small group was this idea of abiding in the love of God. Everybody had their own understanding of that, that kind of connected to everybody in a special way. He, um, He asks us to come and be with him before we even try to figure out our identity, before we try to do anything, He invites us to just come and sit with him. That's amazing. Just let that sink in for a second. Identity is the second piece. So we are all sons and daughters of God. We're seated in heavenly places with him. He calls us priests, but he also calls us friends. And that is one of the most uh, important and truest revelations of who God has revealed himself to be through the person of Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.15 says to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. You're already approved. You've been justified. You've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You're able to present yourself to him as already being aware of that fact. His sacrifice doesn't require anything from you other than a yes. He's a friend. And so your identity, first and foremost, is as a friend of God, and everything else comes second. So I just want to tack those two things up over everything that I'm going to say today, because today's message is a hard message. Today's message is on sacrifice. Sacrifice is a hard thing to talk about. It's, it's hard for me to stand here and tell you what to sacrifice. It's hard for me to stand here and talk to you about sacrifice in your lives, but it's important, and that's why we're going to talk about it. So it's time to talk about our destiny. So we talked about relationship, we talked about identity, now we're going to talk about destiny. Josh introduced this idea of sacrifice last week. He kind of gave us the timeline of sacrifice through the Bible. From the very beginning in the garden, an animal was sacrificed to cover Adam and Eve when they realized they were naked. And then we have Cain and Abel, and we have sacrifice throughout the Old Testament temple system. And then we have the sacrifice of Jesus... But then Josh pointed out that the church is called to live out sacrifice. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. What does it mean that the church is called to live out sacrifice? 
Paul read, or sorry, not Paul, I wish. Josh read Romans 12 to us last week. Uh, <laughs> and so in the first two verses of Romans 12, Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice and to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I think it's important to understand what he means by this. This week I want to focus on what is this living sacrifice that Paul is talking about. And I'm going to give you a hint. It's very clear that Paul believes that there is something about living as a sacrifice that unlocks the renewal of our mind and discerning the will of God. If you read those two verses again, I'm going to say that again. There's something about living as a sacrifice that unlocks understanding the will of God in our lives. So under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, right, we read all those books and and we see that people had specifics on exactly what they were supposed to bring to the altar, We have in the book of Leviticus, it lays out all these laws and all these rules about how the people sacrifice to God. And so we have uh, bulls and rams and birds for the atonement of sin and grain for thankfulness and, and provision. And then we have cattle for peace and silver and gold were offered for unintentional sins or unintentional trespasses. And so today I want to explain exactly what kind of offering God is looking for on the altar of your life. Because it's no longer animals, and it's no longer silver, and it's no longer grain. It's something different. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, we just welcome you here this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. God, we just ask you to come and speak to each person. Jesus, you know what we need this morning. You know what we're missing. You know what we're longing for. You know where we struggle. You know what we hold on to too tightly. So Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come this morning. Renew our minds. Show us something new about you, God. Touch us. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk to you about why sacrifice is important to God first. Because we can't talk about sacrifice without understanding why it's important. So from the beginning of time, humans were always supposed to be walking with God and living at peace with one another, right? If you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis, what's central to that story is that they were walking with God in the garden and they were living at peace with one another. Genesis and Revelation, the first and final books of the Bible, mirror one another in a beautiful way. And I'm fascinated by it. Take the time to do that sometime. Read the first book and then read the last book. It's awesome, right? Because in Genesis, we see this creation and it's perfect and it's good. And people are at peace with one another. People are in close relationship with God. And then what happens? There's a descent, right? There's sin and that's fractured. And it's no longer the way that it was supposed to be. And so humanity kind of descends into this this sin, this brokenness. But then Revelation, what is Revelation when you read it? See, people get scared of this book because, in my opinion, um, if this makes you mad, just let me know later, but we have bad teachers. We have bad teachers teaching on Revelation. 
bad teachers teaching on Revelation that scare people out of that book. Revelation is a beautiful picture of the ascent. See, Genesis is the descent from creation to the fall. Revelation is the ascent from brokenness to repair. And then in the end of Revelation, I'm getting chills right now. I'm probably going to cry. In the end of Revelation, everything is set right. It's fixed. And it's not fixed by anything we've done. It's fixed by the sacrifice of Jesus. The book of Revelation offers us the singular, most beautiful picture of the eventual vision of God and humanity being reunited as it was originally intended in the garden. The story comes full circle, right? And so the reason that I want to talk about Revelation today is because, and that's not going to be the whole message, but what are the opening words of the book of Revelation? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words in this book. And what do we never do? Right? Honestly. And so I'm going to read to you this morning from Revelation to get you excited about these next two weeks. So, in other words, Jesus' sacrifice was for what I'm about to read. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This has become, this has very quickly become my favorite verse in the entire Bible to spend time in and meditate on. Why? I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but there's nothing theological about it. And we get caught up in the mess of uh, figuring out what our end times theology is and reading Revelation as this deeply encoded book, and we have, to, we have to break the code of Revelation, and we have to whatever. But just sit with these four verses and weep. There's nothing about this verse that makes me wrestle with endless questions. Nothing about it keeps me up at night. At the end of the day, it speaks to the deepest longing of my life for him to dwell with us, for us to be his people, and for him to be our God. Jesus gave himself for that. He gave himself for two things, to unlock new relationship with God and to unlock new relationship with one another. Right? Read that. Look at that. That third verse, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's at the center of this. That's what we're talking about. Sacrifice has those two results and they're evidenced right there. God dwells among the people and they're unified. So what does this have to do with us? Why are we talking about this? Why is this important? Because I'm talking about living a life of sacrifice. And that doesn't really sound like something we can achieve, because it's not. But it's what Jesus did. And so what I want to do is, is draw together this idea of being alive in Christ and being united in his sacrifice. 
And we've got to know what his sacrifice was for if we're going to do so. So in Mark 14, Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. So he knows what's coming. He knows that he's going to be crucified. He's going to take the sins of the world into himself, be punished, die, and then rise again. But he's, he's read of it in his scriptures, and now the time has come for his life to atone for the sins of the world. And Jesus prays this prayer as he gets ready to sacrifice himself completely, to completely surrender himself. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. So for centuries, this has been known as the prayer of indifference. So theologians and deeply spiritual people since the first century have have called this the prayer of indifference. And often we think of indifference as being a bad thing. We think of it as apathy. But this is a different kind of indifference. The indifference that we're talking about here is Jesus' indifference toward his own will. Jesus' indifference toward his own like perspective, toward his own preference. And so we have to... We have to understand that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, what he sacrificed as much as his body, right? Because we have lots of pictures of that. We have the passion of the Christ, and we can watch that and see what it was like for Jesus to be crucified. And we know kind of what this looks like. But what he sacrificed as much as his body was his will. As Jesus prayed, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, he began to sweat blood. That was terrifying to him. That was stressful. That was, that was an intense moment. And when we read that Jesus sweat blood, it's easy to be like, okay, that's a thing in the Bible and whatever. But like, that's actually a real thing. Like, it's a real medical phenomenon. And I didn't even put it in my notes because I'm not going to try to say it. But it's this thing where when people experience deep anguish, when they experience this deep fear, this deep um, suffering within themselves, they can actually like sweat blood out of their pores, like out of the surface of their skin. And so for Jesus to partner with the will of God in this moment, it was challenging, it was intense, it was agonizing, it was incredibly frightening. One might even say it was offensive to him. It took sacrifice. Sacrifice was happening before he went to the cross. Sacrifice was happening when he sacrificed his will. That's what allowed him to get there. If Jesus had never sacrificed his will, if he had never sacrificed his preference to the Father, he never would have arrived at the cross. So this gets at the heart of why we called this series Alive. Because this series came about the idea of, this biblical idea of dying to sin. And I'm going to level with you. We called this series Alive because we thought it would probably be better to call it Alive than Dead. (laughs) We were seriously sitting around the table at the Richter's house, and we were thinking about this idea, and we were like, yeah, like dead to sin, dead to self, you know? And and it was like, well, we can't really call it Dead, because nobody wants to come to this small group called Dead, or the sermon series called Dead. So we called it Alive instead. But, but this, is, this is also at the heart. This is the end, right? This is what we have in our sights. 
When we're talking about dying to self, when we're talking about dying to sin, what we're really talking about is being alive to him, being alive to the will of the Father. And so keep that in your sights because we're going to kind of go deep into this. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7, get at the heart of what we mean by being a living sacrifice, right? Because we've got to understand that, being a living sacrifice as Jesus was a living sacrifice. So I'm going to read it to you. It says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, this is a mess of words. Sometimes when Paul writes, I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't you just say it? But when we read this, right, what what is he talking about? He's He's talking about being united with Christ in his death and resurrection, Now, if we're talking about being united with Christ in his death, and we take that in the most literal way, the only way we can understand that is physical suffering. Talking about everything that the death of Jesus, that's how Paul means it when he says this. He's talking about everything that the death of Jesus encompassed. It was the death of his will. It was the perfect joining of Jesus with the will of the Father. His preference, his will, died when he went to the cross, and he was resurrected in a new body with, a even, with an even newer perspective. How crazy is that, right? That Jesus, Jesus could even come out better than he was before, and it's because he sacrificed his will, he sacrificed his preference to the Father that then allowed for him to be sacrificed on the cross to atone for sin. So when it says, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, that doesn't mean we're literally going to be crucified. The likeness of his death was one where Jesus surrendered everything to the Father. He said, this is yours. Take it. Not my will, but your will. And that is how these two things relationship with God and relationship with each other were released because Jesus made that sacrifice. Letting old parts of ourselves become surrendered to God is what opens up new life in Christ. If we're united with him in the likeness of his death, that means our old self is sacrificed like Jesus was so we can come to life to the will of God in our world. The will of God for Jesus' death and resurrection Ultimately, was for that picture in Revelation that I read to you. But before that, it was unto the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the uniting of the church, and the reunion of us with him. We came into new relationship with him when the Holy Spirit was poured out in a way that we never could have been before. In a way that we never could have been before. We came into relationship with one another in a way that we never could have been before in the sacrifice of Jesus. And then we're going to realize a greater measure of that 
a billion times beyond what we experience now when we experience what's written in the book of Revelation. So when we talk about the kingdom breaking in, right, we use that language here a lot, the inbreaking of the kingdom. What we're talking about is that future age, the rule of God, where he's perfectly seated on the throne, right, where our will is surrendered to his will, where that perfection is realized, we're talking about getting a glimpse of that in the present. It might last five seconds, but that's why we're excited about it, because we get to see just a little bit of that right now. So, about two months ago, I was preparing a Bible study for 242 out of 2 Peter, and if you're familiar with 2 Peter, there's a lot in there about suffering. The verses that we were going to talk about um, spoke of suffering in a letter that had been written to the persecuted church. And I was sitting and I was praying, Holy Spirit, how does this even remotely apply to us in 242 this week? We're comfortable, we have our basic needs met, we aren't in danger, we're so far from suffering. I was frustrated. I was sitting there at my desk with my Bible and I was like, what is this? Like, how am I supposed to talk to people about this? This has got nothing to do with what we're experiencing right now. And his reply drew me back to this poem that I'm going to share with you. I think you each have one in your bulletins, right? And he reminded me of something that I had heard a few weeks earlier. And, and what the Holy Spirit said was, you need to develop a healthy theology of sacrifice. If you're going to pastor people, if you're going to shepherd people, you need to develop a healthy theology of sacrifice. Because people miss God because of how they think about sacrifice. This is where I think people go wrong. We know that the Bible speaks about sacrifice and suffering, but we look for them in the wrong places in our lives. We point to tragedies that have been suffered with no explanation, and we say things like, God works in mysterious ways, or everything happens for a reason. And I know people who constantly have something going wrong in their lives, and they think that God is disciplining them or punishing them, or that they're, they're somehow suffering for the gospel because random or not so random bad things happen to them all the time. And I, I believe that God is drawing us to a different kind of sacrifice altogether. See, we talk about the martyrs in the first century, people who are dying for the gospel, being persecuted by Rome, right? And they're, they're, Rome is rounding these Christians up, and they are systematically executing them in the first century. And there's a dissonance, because we're so far from that. We're so far from that in the world today. We're pretty safe, right? Nobody's coming in here and disrupting our meeting and rounding us up and trying to kill us. It's just not happening. And so we take this experience of the martyrs, we take this experience that we read about in the book of Acts, we take you know, the story of Stephen, we take all these different things, and we try to then justify them with our life that we're living. And we try to say, okay, well, if they were having, you know, if they were being killed and they were having all this like physical persecution coming against them, then suffering for me looks like um, I broke my leg. Or suffering for me looks like my family got in a car accident. Or suffering for me looks, and we immediately jump to that, like, that physical suffering. But it's not the same thing. What, the, what was suffering, when we talk about the martyrs, was their will. Amen. It was their preference, right? They were so surrendered to God that they were willing to sacrifice their lives. That's the point. 
It's not about some inexplicable suffering that people are enduring, and then they say, okay, well, that's God because I'm suffering, right? It's, it's comparing apples to oranges. They were in that day, and so what surrendered themselves to God, and that was the culture that they lived in in that day. And so what we've got to figure out is what does sacrifice look like for us today in the United States of America in 2019? Because it's not going to look the same as it did in Rome in the first century. We've got to figure out the heart issue at hand. We've got to figure out what made those martyrs different in their hearts that caused them to live the way that they lived. So I'm going to share with you a poem because I think it captures this. I think it captures this idea of what was going on in their hearts. What was so different about them? What does this life of sacrifice look like? What does it look like to be a living sacrifice? This poem was shared by Phil Strout, the National Director of Vineyard USA, in one of his leadership classes that I had the opportunity to take this past summer. And it's a 13th century monastic poem that was given to him by his spiritual mentor. And he's passed it on to every leadership class that he's taught for the past few decades. And I share it with you because one of my favorite things to tell people when they ask what I do is that I get to help pastor a church of leaders. You people in these seats are the catalyst for change in this community. And I don't say that to put down any other church. I don't say that to put down any other body of people. I don't say that to put down any church's mission. I say that because I feel blessed to spend so much time with hungry people people who are willing to take risks and challenge yourselves. So I share this with you today because I see this church much like a leadership class where we're all teaching each other. Because that's what the church is really supposed to look like, right? So whether you think of yourself as a leader or not, you are, because I say you are. <laughs> that's why we're here. We're leading each other. We're leading ourselves. We're leading our families. We're leading our workplaces. We're leading the city. So be encouraged. Our mission at this church is to raise up a body of passionate lovers of Jesus. And if that doesn't require leaders, I don't know what does. So if you don't think of yourself as a leader, you need to start because you're here. So this poem is what inspired this entire Alive series because it captures what it truly means to live the sacrificial life. It's called Dying to Self. So I'm going to read it to you. You can follow along with the copy that you have, and I'm going to take some pauses to tell a few stories as we go. So dying to self, when you're forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught, and you don't sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is happy, being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. Now I want to stop on this for just a second. What I'm talking about right now, sacrificing our will, what do you hear in the first lines of this poem when you're forgotten or neglected? Your heart is happy at oversight. That's not physical suffering. That's the suffering of our preference. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinion ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. When you are lovingly 
When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any impunctuality or annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. The thing that attracted Bree and I to this church in the very beginning, because we've had a lot of conversations about this. Why did you guys stay when so many people didn't stay? What is, why, why, why are you here, right? And sometimes I'm like, I don't know. And sometimes I'm like, I guess Chris Marsman offered us uh, King's Island tickets the first week we came. <laughs> and sometimes I tell the cool story that I have about Sockham, right? Because that's a cool story. But I was thinking about this poem, and I was like, why did we stay? Why did we stay here? What attracted us to you? And the very first week we came, John was preaching out of Matthew, and I can't even tell you what verses it was, but he was talking about unoffense. He was talking about the unoffense of Jesus. And I don't live this out perfectly, neither do you. But this is what attracted us to this body of people, was this idea of being unoffended toward one another. I grew up in a small town, and small towns are hotbeds for gossip. Small towns are hotbeds for knowing the affairs of your neighbors. Right? And sometimes that's what attracts us to small towns, because we get to know what's going on with everyone. But that's what was refreshing to me, was that when John talked about being unoffended toward one another, I'd never even considered that. I'd never considered the idea of being unoffended toward someone who had wronged me, unoffended the way Jesus was unoffended, unoffended toward the culture, unoffended toward people who cross me, unoffended toward churches that have a different philosophy of ministry that doesn't look anything like what I would do, unoffended toward people who don't want relationship with me. That's what we're talking about. We would prefer to hold on to our offense. Josh talked last week about don't repay evil for evil, right? Don't be overcome by evil. Be unoffended. That's why we stayed. When you're content with any food, any offering, any raiment, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. Your own good works or itch after commendation, when you truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. Where do we see this? Jesus truly loved to be unknown. What happened when someone got healed? He would say, don't tell anyone. He truly loved to be unknown. Jesus was the exact opposite of a superstar preacher. Jesus I'm sorry, was the exact opposite of a televangelist. I'm going to try really hard not to let my personal preference sneak in as I talk about this. But humility is the first ingredient in a healthy ministry. Humility is the first ingredient in a healthy life, in a healthy family life. And I'm not talking about false humility, where we beat ourselves up. I'm not talking about worm theology, right? What I mean by worm theology is that we are these worms and God is so great, and we just stink, and we live in the ground, right? But what I'm talking about is real humility. When we truly love to be unknown. 
when you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. So when Phil reads this poem, he tells his story. I'm going to tell his story because I think it's a great story. So Phil Strout, before he was the national director of Vineyard USA, was the pastor of a church about this size in New Jersey. And he had a small team, much like we do, and he was awakened in the night by the Lord. And he said, Phil, pray for a million dollars for the church. And Phil was like, a million dollars? What could we do with a million dollars? But that's a lot to ask for. And so he was like, I really don't know if I want to pray for a million dollars for the church. But I'll do it. So he gets his staff team together, and he said, guys, really feel like the Lord's telling us to pray for a million dollars for the church. And so we're going to commit ourselves to doing this. Every week during our staff meetings, we're going to take half an hour, we're going to pray for a million dollars for the church. And so they did this week after week for months, prayed for a million dollars. And they were going to do it until they saw it come to pass. And then one morning, Phil woke up, and he went downstairs, and he made his cup of coffee, and he had some breakfast, and he walked out on the front porch to grab the newspaper. And he pulled the newspaper out of the sleeve, and he unrolled it, and the headline said, Local church receives a million dollars. But the problem was, God got the wrong address. <laughs> and at first, he was devastated because he was like, What is the. We prayed for a million dollars for months, and this other church gets the million dollars. And then he realized what God meant by church. That's what he's talking about, right? Praying for others to prosper. That's dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. Are you dead yet? In these last days, the Spirit would bring us to the cross, that I may know him being made conformable to his death. This poem wrecked me the first time I heard it. I sat with this and I read it over and over again and I thought, wow, how mistaken am I? And it caused me to examine, what am I holding on to? Where is myself so prevalent where I may not have even realized it was? That's what sacrifice looks like. The sacrifice of Jesus wouldn't have happened without those things. Sacrifice goes far beyond being willing to put your body in a compromising situation. Sacrifice involves being able to put your preference in a compromising situation. And so I feel the heaviness, and I can see some people like beginning to cry, and it's okay. It's exciting, right? It's not heavy. And you're like, yeah, right. It's not. Jesus is calling us to lay down our agenda. He's calling us to pray his prayer of indifference toward our own will, toward our own offense, toward our own preferences, our own ideas, our own defense. Living a life of selflessness, living a life focused on others, looks like living out of that reality, that our will is just that, our will. 
And it pales in comparison to the great and unmatched will of God for our lives. He has the keys. He has the keys. And we have good ideas. Sometimes they're Holy Spirit ideas from inside of us. And so what I don't want you to hear is, I need to throw all of my ideas out the window and just pray. He'll stir up good thoughts. He'll stir up good works in you. So don't hear what I'm not saying. It's an invitation to lay down your preference and figure out what his preference is. Lay down your agenda. Lay down your will. Lay down your opinions. Lay down your revenge. Lay down your ideas. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And I just want you to consider this as we worship. I want you to pray, Father, not my will but yours. What would you have me sacrifice for you today? When we talk about putting something on the altar, right? Is it an animal? Is it money? Is it grain? The sacrifice that he's looking for on the altar of your life today is your will, your preference. And we can trust him because he's good. He'll be careful with it. He won't abuse that. Sacrifice to him. Whatever part of it gives good gifts. So I want to encourage you, whatever you sacrifice to him, Whatever part of your will, whatever part of your preference, whatever relationship, whatever opinion, he'll handle it with care. So I'm going to pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for that picture that you show us in Revelation. Where we dwell together, you dwell with us. You are our God. And so as we worship you this morning, come and give us a glimpse of that. Give people the presence of mind to look around See the people around them worshiping you. Be aware that we are your people here. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and dwell with us this morning. Give us just a tiny, tiny measure of what that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.